Well, we uh, understood that you all are not shy about asking questions. <laughs> so I think we'll spend most of our time in a dialogue, but maybe a couple of words of introduction beyond uh, what Spence has already uh, laid out there uh, would be useful just as a little bit of context uh, for all of you social entrepreneurs. Certainly would not have occurred to me when I was growing up on a small farm uh, three hours from here that I would ever be speaking to social entrepreneurs or be considered to have anything worth hearing because that was not part of my life plan. I was going to be a research chemist and somewhere along the line after going pretty far into a PhD in quantum mechanics I discovered that biology was actually pretty interesting, one of those messier sciences that I had avoided and suddenly seemed to be calling to me. So I went to medical school, uh, learned to fall in love with genetics as a means of putting together digital kinds of science with the science of the human body, and ended up on the faculty at the University of Michigan uh, teaching medical students, taking care of patients, and doing research. And then this call came to come uh, to Washington and to lead the Human Genome Project, something that my mother told me you must never do is become a federal employee, but it was necessary in order, in order to have this task uh, a possible one for me. And it was a great gift. And one of my messages to you is that, in fact, the government can be an incredibly powerful place uh, for social entrepreneurship because the resources and the abilities that you have to steer really powerful ships are quite remarkable. Now, as the director of the National Institutes of Health, it is my job to oversee uh, our nation's most major investments in biomedical research with an annual budget of $31 billion a year and to try to figure out where are the most exciting scientific opportunities and to make sure that we are jumping on those as quickly as possible. And that extends from the most basic kind of science, uh, working in areas that have no obvious human implications, but who knows, that might be the next breakthrough in cancer if you sort of go a little further down that path and see what you find, and all the way to clinical trials uh, for new therapeutics that are just coming forward. That broad spectrum, that's all part of what NIH does. But I think it is true that when you look at the problems of the world, and you all are focused on those in powerful and creative ways, many of them, if they're going to have adequate solutions, are going to require good science to make that possible. Whether it's the science of better health, and I'm not just talking about health here in this country, but particularly about global health, which is one of my own personal passions, or whether we're talking about climate change, or new opportunities for energy alternatives, or how we're going to feed the hungry, uh, all of those, if they're going to be successful in the coming decades, are going to rest upon, in many ways, a foundation of good, solid science. So it is a wonderful place to migrate into if you have those kinds of passions and dreams. And for me, now being here uh, at NIH, uh, the chance to try to nurture those social goods that come out of uh, this remarkable engine of discovery that NIH represents makes the job just incredibly interesting and fascinating. And there's lots of interactions between the science and the public policy. Uh, right now, for instance, the stem cells. What are we uh, supposed to be doing in terms of making sure that human embryonic stem cell research is conducted in a fashion that moves the science forward but is attendant to important ethical principles? Uh, what about the whole direction that personalized medicine is going, which is uh, something I'm quite interested in because it's a direct consequence of understanding the human genome. How do we make sure that we do that right so we have the right evidence, we focus more on prevention, not so much waiting for people to get sick in the ICU, but actually trying to prevent that. How do we fold all that into healthcare reform, which of course is the topic of the week, in fact of the year, maybe of the decade. All of those are part of the job, 
And I think that is a reflective of the way in which in our society right now, science and social goods are closer together than they ever have been. At least they should be. And the final thing I'd say, and I think this is probably going to resonate with many of you, is that I do worry about our future in this country when you consider how poor our science education is. And when you look to see the literacy about scientific issues that has been dropping steadily in our population, and when you look to see the quality of what many kids are exposed to in terms of science education in K through 12, you can't be very complacent about that. We are really losing our edge. It's not that we want every student to end up being a scientist, but so many of the issues uh, that citizens are going to have to deal with are going to depend upon a familiarity with science and basic principles like how do you assess risk. And we are not in a very good place for that. And so certainly for me, I'm delighted to see the Obama administration's strong focus on trying to do something about this with programs like the Race to the Top and certainly something that NIH, although this is not our primary mission, is very interested in trying to see this go forward. So all of those things are sort of on the plate that I uh, look at every morning when I get up. I'm never quite sure what I'm going to be served, but I know it's going to be interesting in terms of the uh, occupations of the day. And I'm delighted to have a chance uh, to be here with all of you who are in a very good position to get the momentum going in the right direction and to hear what your ideas and your questions might be. And now I'll turn it over to my friend and colleague, Tony Fauci. Thank you, Francis. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here with you today. I couldn't help but reflect as Francis. Francis and I have been working together now for about 17 years. Uh, he was the director of the National Human Genome Re Research Institute for 15 years and then, as he said, took a year off to reflect on the nature of reality and then came back as <laughs> the director of NIAID and I've been at the NIH for a long time. But Francis told me that he came from a farm a few hours from here and it just goes to show two people who are working on very, very closely related things could not have come from a more different background. I came from a uh, Bensonhurst section of Brooklyn about four hours north of here. And for those of you who know anything about New York and the Bensonhurst section of Brooklyn, the very fact that I'm here is my first major accomplishment in life. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's interesting. I, I always uh, uh, bring up the point when I talk to people at your stages of your career. And, you know, this is an extraordinarily talented group of people with great training and a, essentially pluripotential future that what in essence will happen to you has a lot to do with your, your fundamental talents, your drive, and your training but also has a lot to do with the circumstances that you find yourself in that are in many respects pure happenstance and luck and how you take advantage of that will really dramatically influence what happens to you. Uh, you know, my own career, I, I wanted to be a, a, a physician, but my training through high school and college was in the fundamental classics, Greek, Latin, philosophy. I, I knew I kind of liked science, but didn't realize that I was very good at it until I got an opportunity to actually be exposed to it. But I did want to go to medical school and there was always a, a kind of a, a tension between things that had to do with people and broad humanitarian issues and the fundamental core of science, which as Francis has said and has shown, really drives so many things that go well beyond health. So as I got into the field, I went to medical school. I did an internship and residency in internal medicine with a, with a, with a touch of of liking towards infectious disease and then the new discipline of immunology. And I had the opportunity for a variety of reasons to come down to the NIH with the thought in mind that I would just go back to New York City and actually practice medicine, never thinking I would fundamentally be a basic and clinical scientist. And the exposure to the, to the joys of discovery and science really transformed me to become a scientist but to never give up 
my real love for what has to do with people. Uh, so I came down to the NIH, and for several years I worked on a variety of projects that were very successful and that I enjoyed very much, and then something happened after being there for about eight or nine years that totally transformed my life, that was completely beyond my control. I was sitting in my office one day in the clinical center at the NIH, and a morbidity and mortality weekly report landed on my desk dated June 4th, 1981. And it was the report of five gay men from Los Angeles who were otherwise well, who came up with a bizarre syndrome uh, uh, called pneumocystis pneumonia, an infection. Now, most people didn't have any idea what pneumocystis pneumonia was, but I did because I was an infectious disease doc at the time. I was board certified in infectious disease, and I had the opportunity to see a lot of patients on the Cancer Institute as a consult to them when they developed infection. And the only people that develop infection with pneumocystis are people who are immunosuppressed. Something is wrong with their immune system. So I immediately said, gee, there's something really wrong here. A month later, 26 patients, all gay men, were reported now from New York City, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, not only with pneumocystis pneumonia, but with capysarcoma, another disease that only occurs in people with suppressed immune systems. And I made a decision in life at that time, this just landed on my desk, that since I was an infectious disease person, and since I was an immunologist, I was gonna completely turn around the uh, direction of my career and start studying this handful of gay men thinking that was the only thing. And I remember writing something that was one of the most prescient things, I didn't think it was prescient at the time, and in a, in a review saying that anybody who thinks that this is gonna remain constrained to an epidemiologically restricted population doesn't know really anything about infectious diseases because it was clear that this was a sexually transmitted disease. So then you fast forward 28 years and we're in the middle still of one of the most transforming public health crises that we've ever faced. But not only that that changed my career, but it opened up my vistas to the whole issue of global health the things that Francis and I both have a passion about. Because as we started to study HIV AIDS, it became clear that there are many infectious diseases in the world that have been completely underappreciated. It's a true story that when I was leaving my residency in New York City to come down to NIH for an infectious disease fellowship, the pundits in Washington, including the Surgeon General, in a non, uh, I would say, in a way that really wasn't nefarious, but just made the offhand comment that the era of infectious diseases was over. And what we should do is concentrate our efforts on chronic diseases. This was 1969. Now, for anybody in our society to say that at the time when 1.8 million people a year were dying of tuberculosis, when 1 million people were dying of malaria, when millions of people were dying of diarrheal disease throughout the world, bespeaks the 1960s, 70s provincialism of this country. So now that we are looking at a global society, the whole issue of infectious diseases and the responsibility that we have as society, not only for the fundamental science, but to get that implemented is one of the reasons why global health is being integrated into virtually everything that we do. I have a heavy dose of it because I'm the director of the Infectious Diseases Institute, but the president himself has come out and made global health one of his priorities. 
Francis, the day he became the director of NIH, made one of his five pillars of his areas of emphasis, global health. So again, from someone who had no idea what they were going to do, maybe practice medicine in a practice in the New York City, is now involved in something that continues to be very exciting for me because you really cannot predict at any time what's going to happen. Just like pandemic flu was a big surprise, just like a variety of other crises. I'm going to end with one joke that I always poke at Francis. As an institute director, we are all responsible. If, this, if I were the director of the Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute or the Cancer Institute, I say we study the fundamental basic and clinical science related to A, B, and C. You just fill in the blanks. If it's cancer, it's cancer. If it's heart, it's heart, lung, and blood, et cetera. For me, it's infectious diseases. But unlike any other institute director, I have a dual mandate. And my institute has a dual mandate. And that is to respond rapidly to the emergency that emerging infectious diseases uh, give you. And, and when Francis was the director of the Genome Project, I used to say, Francis is a brilliant guy, but when he goes to bed at night, he is never going to wake up to a genomic emergency. <laughs> when I go to bed at night, there may in the morning be a new disease that I have to deal with. So with that, I'll stop and be happy to ask any questions. <laughs>